1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts on the channel. And today I'm talking to Andrew Jewett about his wonderful new book, Science Under Fire, Challenges to Scientific Authority in Modern America, which is just out from Harvard University Press. Andy, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: I wondered if you could begin our interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself.
0: Sure. I uh, went to graduate school at UC Berkeley, and I wasn't very professionalized at the time. I didn't really know how academia or the disciplines worked, but I knew that I wanted to understand some features of U.S. political culture that were becoming increasingly visible in the mid-1990s. When I enrolled, I had been out of school for a while, but I still lived near Berkeley where I had done my uh, undergraduate work. So I re-enrolled for a Ph.D. and immediately met David Hollinger there, who became my main graduate advisor. I also worked fairly closely with the historian of science, Catherine Carson. And I had lots of different interests, but I found myself drawn to questions about science and technology. Lots of folks in my family work in science, math, engineering. And I had actually gone to Berkeley myself as an undergraduate to study physics in the first place. I uh, spent three semesters in physics before switching to history. And it was a time when disputes over science were increasingly... In the news, there were, of course, long-running debates about teaching evolution in the classroom. This was the time when the intelligent design movement was uh, getting off the ground. Climate denial was becoming a major force in U.S. politics after a new group of Republicans under Newt Gingrich swept into Congress in 1994. Uh, These weren't my only concerns as an observer of politics. I was interested in race, immigration, foreign policy. But as I was listening to arguments about science and politics, this was the time when the culture wars spun off what were called the science wars in academia, I was struck by a set of assumptions that seemed to be shared on all sides. And first was this familiar view of science as a relentlessly value-neutral form of knowledge. But second was the idea that some form of scientific materialism or rationality is the ideological keynote, maybe somehow the philosophical source of the modern world. And I wanted to understand how these ways of viewing science intersected with broader political currents in the U.S.
1: And so Science Under Fire is, is not your first book, is not your first um, uh, attempt at, at tackling this topic. How did you come to write Science Under Fire?
0: Well, there's a way in which the two books I've written of each explore one of the assumptions that I was just talking about. My dissertation, uh, which became a book called Science, Democracy, and the American University, dealt with this question of value neutrality primarily. Uh, I was reading around in sources from the early 20th century, and I found that a lot of the authors explicitly rejected a view of science as politically, religiously, morally, aesthetically neutral. And in fact, that many of them thought it carried with it a certain kind of culture that often underpinned democracy. So the book narrated the history of that idea in the United States, that science provides a foundation for a democratic culture. This was an extremely influential view in the universities through the first half of the 20th century. And then the new book, Science Under Fire, traces this other assumption that a value-neutral science anchors modernity. And you can find that view among many champions of science, especially by the 1940s, 1950s, and beyond. Uh, But I argue that critics of science have been just as important, if not more so, in establishing the idea that science underpins modernity. Uh, And again, the argument took shape as I was reading through a wide range of sources from different time periods. I've just found a surprising number of critics of scientific authority, especially in the middle decades of the 20th century, and this is a period that's often called the golden age of American science, when scientists and doctors were constantly appearing in advertising, hawking various kinds of goods, when nuclear physicists were national celebrities. And I found that at the very same time, there were all kinds of figures with lots of different political and religious views who argued that science destroyed the cultural foundations of society, that a scientific outlook made it impossible to understand ourselves and one another. And it's important to note that very few of these critics rejected science whole cloth. Uh, I'm not focusing here, for example, on the well-known case of theological conservatives who set themselves against Darwinism because it conflicted with Genesis. They appear at points, but they're not the main uh, actors here. Uh, Looking at lots and lots of other figures who had really no problem with the natural sciences, including even Darwinian biology. But what concerned them was the extension of scientific authority, scientific methods, ways of seeing, to the study of human beings. Uh, and this kind of argument was widespread, I found, decades before the 1970s, which many interpreters have identified as the starting point for the kinds of critiques that we see all around us today.
1: And it really, so the book really covers the, the whole 20th century almost. But before we we kind of back up and, and start at the beginning, um, I want to start with, the opening of the book, um, which which reads today, science is under fire as never before in the United States. So um, this is a very different situation than than when you started your graduate work in the culture wars and the science wars, but um it 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 it's a pressing contemporary concern. So um, can you tell us a little bit in what ways is science under fire um at at this moment?
0: Yeah. Well, many of the critiques of science today, and I think this has been increasingly true since the 1960s, uh, actually focus on specific applications or procedures, although they do take some of their strength from an underlying belief that scientists and technicians more generally are no more trustworthy, maybe less trustworthy than other kinds of people. Now, we certainly see a number of these patterns on display in the current pandemic, right? Distrust of the statistics and explanations put forth by epidemiologists, public health experts. Of course, resistance to government-mandated or even government-sponsored vaccination. Uh, Since the 1990s, as I mentioned earlier, challenges to climate science have been prominent. Political actors have highlighted and magnified the views of a few uh, prominent skeptics. And there are other patterns that have been familiar since the 1970s, opposition to Darwinism in the classroom, which I also mentioned, Uh, various kinds of new age and countercultural thought that challenge scientific understandings of medicine, uh, cosmology, much else. And then among radical critics in the universities, there's a widespread sense, not universal, but uh, fairly common sense, that science helps to authorize the characteristic forms of oppression that define the modern world, that the dominance of scientific rationality marginalizes other ways of thinking, seeing, and living. Uh, And each of these patterns has its own kind of dynamic. But I do want to argue that they also reflect in part uh, the legacy of the kinds of arguments that I mainly discuss in this book, Uh, these claims that science has done lasting and perhaps permanent damage to our understanding of human beings, of individual and social behavior.
1: Okay. And so before, again, before we start right at the beginning of the 20th century, just um, I, if you could make one more point of clarification, how does the book define science? And um, and then what are the forces that kind of shape our understanding of it? Because you're very clear about n- um, not just using a definition of the scientist's own definition of science.
0: Yeah, I try not to rely on on any kind of hard and fast definition of science in my work. I'm tracing the full range of meanings that have been assigned to science over the decades and centuries. uh, And I don't necessarily want to go through each of my chapters just saying X got it right and Y got it wrong. Uh, But I do have my own ideas, which I've developed in the context of studying these questions over two decades now. Uh, And I talk about this a little bit in the conclusion where I suggest that we uh, would do well to see science as a set of practices and institutions and not to conflate it with any of the comprehensive philosophies or worldviews that have gone under the banner of science during the past several centuries, various versions of materialism, for example, or naturalism and so forth. Uh, Obviously, these stories intersect at innumerable points, but I think it's important to keep the distinction in mind when we're generalizing about what science is and especially about what it does, what it does is, above all in our societies and our daily lives. That's the kind of subject of this book, how folks have thought about what science is doing to our, our shared social world. And of course, in terms of where these understandings come from, we're bombarded on all sides by arguments about what science is. Uh, so a certain type of method is taught to kids in schools, right? Science proceeds through a series of kind of recipe-like steps, hypothesis formation, testing, and so forth. And in other ways, our culture is just shot through with images of science, how it works, what it tells us about the world. Uh, one of the major arguments in this book is that critics of science uh, and not just scientists themselves, and, and this is true whether they're addressing specific applications or the whole enterprise, have a powerful effect on general understandings of what science itself is. Scientists don't have a monopoly on the interpretation, the cultural meanings of what they're doing. These critics define it in the process of uh, rejecting certain aspects uh, of the scientific enterprise. Uh, and those definitions gain immense weight over time through sheer repetition, if nothing else.
1: So so the challenges to scientific authority in a sense also shape definitions of science. Um, and the, the story really begins in the wake of World War One, I. And I, I think you argue that sort of in the progressive era, the turn of the 20th century, there was this notion that science and moral progress both reinforced one another and they went together. And then this starts to unravel in the wake of World War One. That's right.
0: Yeah, I mean, for those who are familiar with the European critiques of science in the 19th century, uh, it's remarkable how late These kinds of arguments emerged in the United States and how comparatively moderate they have mostly been. You don't see that much in the US of the kind of sweeping anti modern and anti liberal sentiments that often appeared in Europe. But it is true that social changes in the 20s led a number of different groups to conclude. Not just that science could present a cultural threat if it was widely heated. This was something that uh, critics of Darwinism, for example, had been saying for decades, that we should not uh, see ourselves like that. But that a scientific culture had actually arrived. Uh, That science now defined the terms in which people thought about themselves and thought about others. Uh, This is wrapped up with the emerging consumer culture In the 1920s, this new emphasis on middle-class consumption, keeping up with the neighbors, in part through the purchase of what were then uh, high-tech gadgets like radios. Uh, It was also related to the prevalence of psychology in U.S. political culture in the 1920s. There is, in those years, a great fascination with the social sciences in general, all sorts of popularizations of social science, but above all, psychology, whether Freudian or some other model. Uh, Critics connected the dots between that cultural phenomenon and many of the social changes around them, Uh, not only consumption, suburbanization, but also uh, changes in education where progressive models and more secular styles were taking hold as the U.S. education system underwent a massive expansion in the 1920s. Uh, Various groups began to argue in that context that science had eradicated traditional understandings of human beings. Uh, Traditional religious understandings for many critics, uh, or traditional Western understandings as embedded in politics, philosophy, literature—perhaps all of the
1: above—and you coin a term. I think this is your term. Please correct me if I'm wrong. That's right. Um, Called mental modernization. Yes. So, so what what does this mean, and what are the kind of um, the variations that it comes in?
0: Yeah, so I'm trying to capture a phenomenon there, which is part of what led critics to conclude that the social changes of that day reflected deeper cultural shifts that were traceable to science. And when I talk about mental modernization, I mean a a style of thinking that was common uh, in academia, especially the social sciences, philosophy, uh, and biology in the 20s. Could be found in the media as well, certainly. And this was a view that said we need to modernize our religious and our ethical thinking in light of modern science, just as we have modernized our understandings of the natural world. Science should shape how we think about every feature of our lives. And I lay out four main types of mental modernization. This is a little schematic, but uh, each sort of style was associated with particular individuals in the 1920s, and each was deeply threatening to many observers who tended to run them all together. So uh, one of these is uh, associated with a British philosopher, Bertrand Russell. It's a kind of scientific existentialism, which says that there is no source of cosmic meaning in the world. Uh, We are free to do what we will, to make meaning as we will. But the universe doesn't back any of our plans, purposes, or visions. The world, as revealed by science, is essentially meaningless. Uh, In the U.S., this is associated with a literary critic named Joseph Wood Crutch. K-R-U-T-C-H, wrote a book called The Modern Temper in 1929, and he actually comes back in the story in a a big way later because he becomes one of the leading critics of the social sciences and associated understandings of behavior in the 50s and 60s, but in the 20s, this book, The Modern Temper, uh, convinces a lot of people that this is the essential meaning of science when we uh, apply it to ourselves and our world. Another style is uh, associated with a behavioristic psychologist, John B. Watson, uh, who argues that because we can't see it in the laboratory, we should not talk about entities like the soul or even the mind, that all there is in human behavior is just conditioned responses to external stimuli. Of course, he famously uh, uses white rats and mazes and so forth, a lot of what we associate with modern psychology and seems to say that there is no free will at all. Therefore, there cannot be uh, moral freedom, uh, among other kinds of freedom. Uh, critics responds remarkably similarly to a third version of mental modernization that's associated with Sigmund Freud, obviously a very different theory uh, of psychological behavior, but is, is read by critics as just another style of modern scientific determinism. That here we are driven by subterranean impulses, not by reason or morality. And then there's a fourth stance that I wrote about at length in the first book, uh, which is associated with John Dewey, the philosopher and educational theorist. And he and his philosophers, as I describe at length in the other book, they they set themselves specifically against the deterministic understandings of uh, someone like a Watson. Uh, They explicitly sought to make room for human purposes, visions, goals, values in the natural world. Uh, But they did insist that there was only the natural world, there were no supernatural phenomena, and that science was the best way to understand all natural phenomena, including even our religious and ethical thought. So critics tended to lump Dewey together with other kinds of scientific thinkers. um, and And to say that because his view was essentially naturalistic, it was fundamentally materialistic. It could not differentiate human beings from animals uh, or machines. And again, all of these tended to be lumped together, and they were seen collectively uh, as the kind of entering wedge of a new scientific culture.
1: So that, that's the, the sort of the criticism that emerged yes. of these the four types of mental modernization right. in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, moving into the 1930s, um, technoc this concept you call technocracy emerges. Yeah. Um, tell tell us about that and how critiques of scientific authority in this period um, start relate to to the New Deal.
0: Yeah. So of course, technocracy means rule by experts, and uh, a lot of critics believe that that's what had emerged in the 1930s. Roosevelt came into office in early 1933. Uh, ready to attack uh, the Great Depression. Uh, And he built up the bureaucratic agencies of the executive branch, and he stocked them with all kinds of experts, including many social scientists. And this development, uh, against the backdrop of the rise of totalitarianism abroad, especially led new groups of critics to worry that science had come to dominate modern culture. Uh, Because it now seemed uh, to many observers that science anchored the prevalent understandings of politics. It wasn't just that people were treating one another as machines or animals in their daily lives, their interpersonal relations, or in advertising, um, but also in governance, that the U.S. was now acting officially, federally, on misguided understandings of human persons. Uh, and many of these kinds of critics, uh, one was the famed political journalist Walter Lippmann, for example, who... Uh, Said that the emerging welfare state under Roosevelt was essentially identical to Soviet Marxism. Uh, not just because it intervened in the uh, economy, uh, but primarily because, uh, the critics said, uh, the government could see people only through the lens of their material needs. Uh, and because this was an implicitly materialistic philosophy, the critics argued, it would lead down the same road as it had in the Soviet Union uh, to a totalitarian regime. And one of the The big arguments I make in the book is that when we're thinking about the history of the welfare state in the U.S., we need to account for a constant stream of criticism, which says not just that it's misguided, but that it's in some deep sense anti-human, that it doesn't just uh, abridge our freedoms in practice, but that it does so in theory, because it rests on a style of thinking rooted in the social sciences uh, that obscures all of what is most important about human beings, cultural commitments, values, uh, again, even this basic fact of their moral freedom as individuals. You see this argument already in the 1930s, much more so by the 1950s, uh, and from some of the most prominent establishment liberals of that time. So a public theologian like Reinhold Niebuhr, for example, makes this kind of critique of the welfare state as it is emerging, he believes, in the United States. This has very, very profound effects, I think, across the decades.
1: So the social sciences um especially in the middle of the 20th century start to become really very fraught and one thing that struck me I mean you mentioned sort of the the battle over darwinism in schools at the beginning and how that's not a not a major focus but um you know arguing that that the the expansion of the social sciences or the human sciences in the 20th century is is the big story in this book um from the standpoint of tensions between science and religion, um can you tell us a little bit about why the social sciences are so fraught are so contested? Why is this the 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 big story, the big battle?
0: Yeah, um. that's right. i mean it's it's not always just social scientists. sometimes natural scientists and especially in biology have seen. Uh, direct implications in their own work for thinking about human beings and human behavior, that they don't necessarily have to go to sociologists for that. But overall, I think uh, this extension of scientific authority to the study of human beings, however it's sort of situated in disciplinary terms, is a really, really important and largely overlooked story when we think about uh, uh, shifts in cultural authority in the U.S. Uh, and elsewhere in the 20th century. Uh this style of criticism that I'm arguing here is, uh, appears way beyond the circles of theological conservatives who worried about Darwinism. And especially, again, in this mid-20th century period, you can find critics of just about every political and religious persuasion arguing that science is destroying our self-understanding as human beings. Uh, this includes many of the folks that we would call religious modernists, includes many radicals and liberals. Um, now. I I don't want to reduce this story to a mere uh, kind of clash of professional interests, but it is important to note uh, that arguments about science's inability to anchor human self-understanding are also arguments that some other form of cultural practice is necessary to understand ourselves. Often, uh, religion is held up as the proper alternative to a scientific conception of humanity. Sometimes, political thought, literature, Western tradition, other sorts of formally secular. Uh, traditions or practices, Um, but there's that perception of a direct clash between cultural programs or cultural systems. Who should we believe? What sorts of practices and methods should we use to understand ourselves? And this is a big part of why the social sciences and associated uh, developments in biology and elsewhere become so uh, controversial in the middle of the 20th century.
1: And what is social engineering? But this,
0: there are many pejorative terms that emerge in the context of this book as I'm narrating this history, and a lot of them come out in the 50s. Um, scientism, which is a very common term, uh, appears by the end of the 50s with growing regularity. Social engineering uh, is a big one as well in that post-war period, a little bit earlier, late 40s into the 50s. A pejorative term uh, for the argument that powerful technicians have become treating people as kind of inert stuff to be manipulated according to the technician's own whims or some sort of political program, rather than meeting the real needs uh, of the people. This is, for example, a key phrase for leaders of the conservative movement that took shape in the 50s, but again, could be heard among many liberals and some kinds of radicals as well, and would become a major concept for the uh, subsequent generation of radicals in the 1960s. There are technicians, experts of some kind that are manipulating us rather than addressing our needs.
1: So you you kind of break out in into separate chapters, um, religious critiques, humanistic critiques, and conservative critiques of scientific mm-hmm. authority in the decades following World War II. Can you tell us a little bit about those um, critiques and then how they kind of start to come together? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I thought of a number of different ways about how to organize that material because it is quite remarkable actually how hard these critiques can be to distinguish from one another. Um, that is in part because they operated at that point, especially at a very high level of abstraction. They were claims about broad sweeping cultural currents, uh, holding that science meant the denial of human freedom, right, the reduction of behavior to some kind of mere impulse or reflex. Uh, and thus that we need to look once again to traditional sources of self-understanding. And here's where the arguments tend to diverge a little bit, that we need to look to religion or we need to look to the humanities or to some kind of political tradition. Uh, But there's an enormous amount of interplay between uh, the critics themselves and the kinds of arguments that they're offering. Uh, They're... Except for that question of what the alternative source of cultural authority ought to be, they're, they're very, very similar in structure and, in some ways, interchangeable, and were combined in a lot of different ways.
1: And so, um, so by the nineteen sixties and seventies,
0: mm-hmm.
1: the these criticisms start to become kind of politically polarized. That's right. Um, and in, in my reading, uh, um, when many of the critiques converge they converge on the political left Mm -hmm. and then on on the political right um tell us a little bit about how debates about scientific authority um become political
0: in the 60s and 70s yeah and i do think that's a phenomenon you've seen since that period that these uh kinds of critiques a little less common on the mainstream and the political center and so forth and more Uh, more typical uh, towards the ends of the political spectrum. And of course, arguments about science are always political and that they have uh, profound implications for the distribution of social resources. But you do see in the 1960s and 70s that claims about the danger of science as a source of self-understanding become much more politically specific. Uh, If you look in the 50s, really it's only the conservatives that attach that kind of critique to specific political programs about who we ought to elect, what sorts of policies we ought to be following, and so forth. Uh, In the 60s and 70s, new versions appear on the left as well. Uh, And by the 1970s, these critiques are often also tied to uh, social movements on the ground around questions such as the siting of nuclear facilities. Uh, Various groups of radicals also begin to argue that science encodes traditional views of human behavior rather than undermining traditional views, that, that, would, uh, that it should be more radical in a sense, it should be more uh, liberatory. Science, they argue, naturalizes white supremacy or patriarchy. The problem is that it preserves the old, right? that it preserves social traditions, not uh, that it undermines them. So there are many new ways in which uh, the political valences of these arguments become uh, much more specific and concrete.
1: And um when do academics start framing science as a social construction? Is this related at all to the trends? Does this come out of the 1960s tradition? Is 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 this another um is, is this a, a new development? Um tell us a little bit about uh sci- you know, science and technology studies, science as a social construction mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how this um this scholarly view poses a challenge to scientific authority.
0: Yeah, I and mean, it certainly is a is a continuation and an extension and elaboration of these uh, arguments about science as a source of, uh, kind of social oppression in many of uh, its instances. The phrase social construction itself comes into use in the 1970s and 1980s as folks are trying to understand more clearly how science relates to various patterns uh, of social relations. Of course, it's often taken by critics' social construction to refer to the idea that somehow scientists just make up their theories and concepts out of thin air. It typically reflects some fairly sensible uh, recognition that our social forms and our social relationships uh, shape the kinds of science and technology that we produce in some way part of the reason why that comes to seem like such a profound challenge to scientific authority, why it generates by the 1990s what were called the science wars, uh, is precisely these kinds of assumptions uh, that I've talked about, that science is rigorously neutral and that it anchors the modern world. So a lot of defenders of science reasoning from those assumptions uh, charged that social constructionist analyses destroy the very concept of truth on which social order had rested for centuries. Uh, if we couldn't trust science, then what could we trust? And these science wars in this period uh, saw all kinds of uh, arguments about the capacity of postmodernism to destroy the world. Uh, from the other side, counter arguments that asserting scientific neutrality would lock in place a whole array of oppressive patterns that stood in the way of human liberation, right? This was the context, as I mentioned, in which I started thinking about questions of science and politics myself. I started grad school uh, with this kind of crossfire of claims, uh, all of them contending one way or another that faulty ideas about science uh, were ruining the world.
1: And so... So I was just about to say that. So, you know, you, so you, end, so the book sort of ends chronologically around the same time period that you started, first started like grappling with and thinking about these questions as a scholar. Um, but then in the conclusion, you really, um, you bring us all the way up into the present day and you have act, actually some very um, practical steps that we can take, some, sugge- some suggestions about, you um, Ways that we might resolve scientific disputes. So, um, so give us your take-home message at the end about what what do we do about this, about these, uh, about this um, lack of about this persistent skepticism in mm-hmm. science, a lack of trust in the scientific enterprise.
0: Yeah, this is obviously the tough question and a very pressing one. Uh, I mean, a lot of folks have been experimenting with, um, say, modes of citizen participation in the scientific procedures and practices. And I think there's a lot uh, of value in some of those kinds of experiments. I don't talk quite at that level of concreteness uh, in the book, but I do want to suggest that to the extent that we continue a lot of the kinds of claims about science that I analyze in the book, that that's not a particularly helpful for resolving our differences around science, around politics. Uh, uh, This has really come out, of course, in the context of the pandemic, right? You see not just a large number of people expressing deep distrust of the data and the experts, but also on the other side, mostly Democrats, uh, answering just trust the science, right? Uh, As if we could sort of ask experts to lay out this comprehensive blueprint of how we should respond to uh, the virus in this case, and then just follow that blueprint step by step. Uh, you know, I certainly think we should be wearing masks, but science doesn't tell us that we have to wear masks. It tells us that masks help to stem the spread of the virus. If we want to minimize infections, and that's our main goal, we should wear them. Many people uh, have other concerns, uh, whether we think them legitimate or not, about personal freedom that they want to see considered as we make policy at various levels. Uh, Science doesn't tell us how to weigh those competing values. We might think it's obvious that our own personal calculation is the right one, that it's some kind of of objective truth, but that's not really a scientific conclusion. Um, I don't want to say, in making this point, that we could somehow bracket our values even more fully and then arrive at some kind of pure scientific truth and then argue about how to apply it. uh, In many ways, and especially in areas like public health, uh, considerations of value are embedded in scientific practices and forms of reasoning themselves. Uh, the philosopher uh, Heather Douglas is very persuasive on this to me. Whenever scientists are tasked with setting thresholds of risk, especially in regulatory science and uh, 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 forms of expertise related to health and so forth, uh, but in, in smaller ways than other uh, forms of science, they build in judgments about whether it's more important errors to go in one direction or the other. So we can think about this uh, in relation to testing in the pandemic. Would we rather have false positives, right, people testing positive for the virus that don't actually have it? Uh, Is it safer to have false negatives, those who have it but are told they don't, right? These aren't scientific questions or technical questions really of any kind. They're ethical, and political questions that we answer individually and collectively uh, through our own styles of reasoning as uh, societies and as citizens.
1: So, you really you're kind of, I'm calling back on some of your previous work. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the conclusions is that maybe we should get kind of give up this notion of the scientist as a, a value neutral, mm-hmm. purely objective. Observer, is mm-hmm. that? I mean, I mean, is it, can you say a little bit more about about that?
0: Yeah, it's ironically a it's a, a way of thinking about scientists that, in some sense, piggybacked on the Christian understanding of a, a kind of person who could bracket self interest and think purely in terms of service to others. Uh, and there have been philosophies of science that haven't relied on that really at all. And it's it's an open question to me as to whether we need to think. Scientists are any more moral or trustworthy in their individual lives than any other kind of person in order to largely rely on what they tell us. There's, of course, a separate set of questions about the practices in which they engage. And uh, it's been common to argue that those practices, rather than any sort of individual virtue, is what ensures that scientific results uh, are uh, reliable and uh, true in the familiar sense. Um, but it's also possible one could imagine, and I think there have been folks who have argued this in the past, that uh, science is simply reliable, that the reason why we rely on it is because it has proven in the past to work, not because uh, we think there's anything magical about the people involved or even the procedures involved, um, that we couldn't necessarily point to them and say this is why it works, but that, that we should just rely on it because we uh, have successfully relied on it in the past. Generally, it tells us how to get about in our world. Uh, and there's a case to be made for backing away from some of the uh, kind of extravagant claims about the way that scientists have to behave either individually or collectively in order to take seriously what they tell us on the basis of uh, lifetimes of patient, detailed study about the world.
1: And maybe if if science were more participatory, Mm -hmm. if people were more involved in it, if they understood it better, there would be less of an us and them type mindset. Um, That's right.
0: I think there's two cases for that kind of citizen participation. One is the claim that it makes the the knowledge produced better and that it incorporates more perspectives, more kinds of social positions and interests. Uh, And at the same time, I think for that reason would also make it more legitimate because those who did not participate could look at it and say, well, hey, look, folks like me were in the room talking about those questions, and those their interests were taken into account, their perspectives, their concerns, uh, their orientations.
1: Well, Andy, I want to read a whole other book on how to do that, <laughs> what you lay out, what you say should be done in the conclusion. Um, um, I, we have taken up a lot of your time. Um, what are... T- can you tell us what you're working on now? What's next for you?
0: Sure. Uh, well, the past few years in my teaching and now my research, I've been thinking about the intersections of science and anti-racism. Uh, there are a lot of studies, very important studies, uh, and there will continue to be on the use of scientific reasoning and scientific concepts to kind of lock into place patterns of bigotry and structural discrimination to uphold a system of white supremacy. Uh, but it's also important to note that the Rise of Science has changed the conditions of argumentation for all actors. This It, it is this immensely powerful resource for persuasion uh, for everyone. And so I, I've been looking at how theorists and practitioners of anti-racism have drawn on the sciences over the years. And I'm starting there with a book on the environmental justice movement, which took shape in the 1990s. Environmental justice, as it emerges, is uh, simultaneously a social movement, a cultural concept, uh, and an analytic category for scholars. And so I'm looking at how it emerges across all of those registers and at how scientific arguments were mobilized in the process. I think this can teach us something about uh, anti-racism itself. and I think it can also teach us something about the way science has operated in our world.
1: Well, Andy, that sounds like a very timely, um, even more timely than this one, which, you know, was released in the middle of a a global, of a pandemic, um, which people, uh, which, which has been um, quite controversial in how it's been contained. But that, but that sounds also very timely and, um, and like a wonderful project. Thank you so much um, for coming and speaking to us today.
0: Thanks so much.